Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing, O Lord, in your sight. Amen. Okay, hold on. In the time of Jesus, there were a lot of things, a lot of conditions and people that were uh, considered ritually unclean or impure. The list is long, and it is sourced primarily from the book of Leviticus. Now, most people only know one or two of the things mentioned in this book, and they like to wield those verses like weapons against people who are different from them. I like to remind people who do that that Leviticus also states that eating shellfish and wearing clothing made of mixed fibers and cutting your hair or beard, getting tattoos, working on the Sabbath, selling land, spreading slander, eating bacon, and employing any form of divination also renders one unclean. So most of us fall into some of those categories. And it's all according to a scroll anyway, written three to 5,000 years ago. In some cases, to become clean again, one was required to wait in isolation for a predetermined amount of time and then present oneself to a priest, like Mary had to do after having her baby boy. Remember, not too long ago. It was Christmas 30 seconds ago, so these stories should be fresh. After birth, women are considered unclean for a number of days or weeks, depending on the gender of your child. The same goes with menstruation. To be ritually unclean or impure meant that you were unfit to enter the temple. It wasn't necessarily tied to sin or shame. Nevertheless, it was a quarantining of sorts, a separating from the pack, which never feels good. Predominantly because it was believed that these impurities were considered highly contagious. Being touched by someone or something impure would render you impure. In fact, in some cases, it got so extreme that mere association with someone could impact your reputation or your social currency, we'll say. This is part of why I think last week's story, that the disciples just stayed on the boat. They didn't even get out and walk on Gentile territory. This all sounds rather stressful to me, not a way I'd like to live, no thank you. But it's good to understand this backdrop because today's reading is absolutely covered in uncleanness and impurity. In fact, just hearing this story read out loud to them must have made the first listeners of Mark's gospel want to take a hot shower. Crowds and women and blood and disease and death, blah. But then there's Jesus. And once again, he turns the whole thing upside down. Using his trademark technique of embedding one story inside of another, Mark wedges the crises of the woman with the 12-year hemorrhage into the story of the little girl on the brink of death. Both women are in dire straits. 
One lies at death's door, the other has been dying slowly by inches. Which is probably the most mind-blowing parallel if you think of these timelines. The dying 12-year-old and the woman with the 12 years of chronic menstruation. For as long as the little girl has been alive, this woman has been hemorrhaging. And according to Leviticus 15, her issue of blood renders her unclean. So besides suffering this messy, painful, weakening physical condition that all of her money spent on doctors has not yet cured, she is unclean as well. This means that her husband, if she has one, any family members and friends, they can't eat food that she has cooked. They cannot sit upon chairs where she has sat. They can't touch her even without becoming unclean themselves. Mostly, they likely give her a wide berth, and some likely just avoid her entirely. She isn't allowed into worship spaces, and live streaming hasn't been invented yet. Clearly, this woman has been cursed, if this has been her existence for 12 years. Meanwhile, not far from here, a 12-year-old girl on the brink of her monarchy is in death's inevitable grip. The kingdom of heaven is like two daughters, and time is of the essence. These stories occur in the other two synoptic gospels, in Matthew and Luke, but both Matthew and Luke give them significantly less airtime, which is fascinating to me. Mark the fast and the furious of the Gospels, the succinct, quick-paced, get-a-move-on Gospel, spends far more time here than Matthew, and twice as long as Luke does. That's fascinating. His story is important to Mark. It tells us, in his opinion, something very important about Jesus and about what the kingdom of God looks like. There's also a couple of differences between these two characters. For example, unlike Matthew's version, in which Jairus' daughter has already died, in Mark's, she is on the verge of death. She is hanging on by a thread. And this starts a ticking clock. Like some kind of Liam Neeson film. But then there's this interjection, an interruption into the original quest to Jairus' home, and it devours precious minutes as a child's life dwindles away. A large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. He couldn't move quickly because there were so many people around him. And a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd as best he could and said, Who touched my clothes? Dude, dude, look at the crowd pressing in on you. It's rather daft to wonder who touched you. Many have touched you. Nevertheless, they placate him by stopping to look around to see who'd done it. Tick, tick, tick. 
The woman, in fear and trembling, fell down before Jesus, confesses to her deed, and proceeds to give him the whole story. The whole story. Daughter, 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 your faith has made you well. But while she was still speaking, and while he was still speaking to her, some people came up from the leader's house to say to Jairus, your daughter is dead. That's it. Her time had run out. Jairus' daughter was lost. Poor time management, Jesus. Couldn't the argument be made that after a dozen years of bleeding, what's one more hour for this woman? A brief delay in healing so that Jesus could make it to the dying girl in time? What's one more hour to someone who's been dying slowly for over a decade compared to someone who won't live to see another day? It's too late now, Jairus. Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any longer? Here shines Mark's genius as a gospeler. He doesn't just spin happy miracle stories. He hooks us into these characters' lives, creating within us the awful oscillation between hope and tragedy, fear and faith. Mark knows that trust in God is not always an easy task. We know that trust in God is not always an easy task. We grasp it and then we lose it. We reach again and we trust. God, replenish our lack of trust. I believe, Lord, help me in my unbelief. We gulp life-giving air and then we are plunged again into darkness and hopelessness. After years of roller coaster suffering, we reach our tether's end, and it's as if the flame is snuffed. Trust is hard. It's brutally hard sometimes. Mark doesn't soften it for us. If you want to know how hard faith is in Mark, listen in a few chapters from now over a long night in the Garden of Gethsemane while Jesus prays for escape from the inescapable. At Golgotha, listen as he shrieks his abandonment by a seemingly absent God. The flame is snuffed. Trust is hard, brutally hard sometimes. But come back to Mark 5 for a minute. When at Jairus' house, Jesus took the hand of the little girl who had just died and whispered, Arise, little lamb. He did exactly what his heavenly father would do for him at Easter. Egyere, the Greek says, get up. Egyerte, he has been raised. Mark is a brilliant author. In the raising of Jairus' daughter, he has put a seed, a foretaste of resurrection. Hallelujah. But back that up, because we can't forget that on the way to resurrection... Jesus got interrupted. It's as if he didn't even hear that clock ticking on the little girl's life. Instead, he gave himself over to bringing life to the living dead, 
to the ostracized, the oppressed, the sick, the unclean. For the woman with the 12-year hemorrhage, time was of the essence. She had been the walking dead for a dozen years. She had lived in fear, in isolation, in anger, in bitterness. But then in a brazen act of faith, she sought after Jesus, not to bother him or to get his attention, just to touch the hem. Certain that that is all it would take to be healed. In that split moment, faith overtook her fear, which did get his attention in a big way. Power went out of him, scripture said. I could spend my whole life just studying that. Power went out of him, which if you think of it is the reverse of the Levitical law that had been stating all along that if an unclean person touches a clean person, they would be contaminated because impurity is contagious. Yet here, where and when Jesus is involved, it's the opposite. Rather than her uncleanness affecting him, his power goes out to her. It's a great reversal. Who touched me? Not because I too am now unclean or impure. Who touched me because someone here has been made whole? And that's worth acknowledging. Jesus has been teaching and preaching and healing and exercising demons, all with incredible authority. Yet in this moment, he wasn't the one in control. She was. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Be whole. Live. The kingdom of God is like one who has lived as a shadow of herself for years only to finally have the courage and the faith to reach out and touch God. To risk it all. Life out of death. Faith outstripping, outrunning fear. No longer a defiled, weak, poor, outcast woman who approaches from behind and speaks with her fearful face on the ground. She is recognized and named as a faith-filled daughter of God. She walks away whole and in peace. Hallelujah. But in the meantime, time ran out and a child died. Jesus is not flustered. I suspect death might be where God does God's best work. He heads to the house, clearing out all the mocking mourners, the servants, the neighbors, and most of his disciples. He only wants the girl's parents, a couple of his closest companions, in the room with him. And then he does the unthinkable. He reaches out and takes her hand. Again, law states that touching a corpse defiles a living person. But Jesus reverses the polarity. Death cannot defile the divine. Begere, get up. The same words that describe Jesus' own resurrection. The kingdom of God is like one whose life is like a ticking clock. Time is running out. Anxiety has peaked. Those meant to mourn with you turn and mock you instead. 
death appears to have won. The kingdom of God is the words, get up, beginning, beginning. Have something to eat. Time has no hold over you here. Hallelujah. The healing and the resurrection accounts are powerful ones, but I think the message is even more profound for Mark. His interest appears to be more focused on the battle for faith against fear. Oh yes, death cannot defile the divine. The healing and the resurrection accounts are powerful ones, but I think the message is even more profound for Mark. His interest appears to be more focused on the battle for faith against fear. This story is riddled with anxiety, time pressure, isolation, social and cultural suspicion, and death, which really isn't any different than our lives today. Not a lot has changed in that regard. We hear the ticking of the clock for ourselves, our loved ones, and the world, and we want Jesus to attend to what we perceive to be the most pressing matter. What's another hour or another day for those who have suffered already for so long? Stay on target, Jesus. Can't you hear the clock? Can't you hear my clock? Can't you see the sand running out? Time is of the essence. Don't get sidetracked. Don't get interrupted. Well, if you think about it, the vast majority of Jesus' ministry was the interruptions. In fact, we wouldn't know how we wouldn't know much about Jesus if it weren't for all of the interruptions. For example, he was teaching one day in a house to a packed crowd. I bet the topic was awesome. But we'll never know what it was because what we hear about is the interruption of a paralytic being lowered down through a hole in a roof by four friends. Jesus can't even go for a silent retreat or even take a nap in a boat without getting interrupted, usually by disciples in a panic about something or someone. Time is always of the essence. And the interruptions that Jesus attends to are where we learn about who Jesus is about what the kingdom of God means. Interruptions do not deter God, nor stand in the way of his good work. Interruptions magnify God's pursuing love of us. The kingdom of God breaks into and breaks through all of our well-made plans, all of our anxiety about timelines and deadlines. The kingdom of God interrupts our priorities bringing life and hope and healing to places and situations that likely weren't even on our radar. The kingdom of God reverses the polarity on our purity laws and our social codes and our expectations. The first is now last and the last is first. The poor are raised up and the rich brought low. The sick are healed and the dead are raised to new life. You cannot infect the Lamb of God. 
It's his love and his grace and his justice and his mercy that is the life-giving contagion. And it's breaking into your life and into my life too. Jesus chooses not to leave people in the conditions in which he finds them. On that, we can all agree. And he has the power to alter that, connect, uh, that condition. And so, church, I ask, do we, as ambassadors of Christ in the world, can the Christian community alter the conditions of people's lives? Can it, too, bring healing into troubled circumstances? Must it not also cross boundaries, risk reputation and social currency? Whether these boundaries are related to ethnicity, gender, race, sexual orientation, politics, or any other boundaries that divide our society, would the church be willing to cross these boundaries and advocate life-giving meaning and change? Would you be willing to cross boundaries? Are you afraid that people who are different might be contagious? Jesus' contagious love is breaking into your life and my life too, reversing polarities. But I think we need to remember that it's never on our schedule. In fact, on the way to that thing that seems like life and death, the kingdom of God might give itself over to a few side quests, even interruptions, to situations and people that have been dying slowly in the shadows, things that don't get our time or attention. God is there, breathing life into dead places, touching the untouchable. Because all people are daughters and sons, children of God. Trust is hard. Trust is hard. But God says, you are mine. You are mine. To God be all the glory. Amen.